This Torah 101 podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas Aharon ben Yosef, whose yard site is today, the 11th of Kislev, the day that this podcast is released. May his soul be elevated in heaven. We are wrapping up principle 11 of the 13 principles of faith. For those of y'all not calculating, this is episode number 14 on this subject, and the concept of this principle is that God rewards those who adhere to him and he punishes those who disobey him. And we talked about the subject of reward and punishment in general and the various different spheres of reward and punishment. We tried to leave no stone unturned in our pursuit of comprehensive knowledge of this principle. And today we're going to wrap it up, please God. And I was actually considering splitting this up into two weeks but I wanted to kind of move on to the next principle, so we're going to try to condense a lot of information into today's session with the help of the Almighty. So we learned that the ultimate objective of life is to be admitted into Olam Haba, into the world to come. And today I want to dedicate our discussion to the subject of how exactly do we make sure that we are included in the people who merit eternal reward in the afterlife. A life well-lived, a successful life, by our definition, results in a person earning Olam Abba. But our sages tell us, you have to be worthy of it. You have to be invited. The Talmud tells us, in the book of Baba Basra, page 75b, entrance to Olam Abba is by invitation only. Amar Rabba, Rabba says in the name of Yochran. Jerusalem of below is not like Jerusalem of Olam Abba. In Jerusalem, in this world, anyone who wants to enter is allowed to enter. Jerusalem of Olam Abba, only those who are invited, only those who are on the invite list can enter Olam Abba. This is a theme that we see throughout the literature that in order to enter Olam Abba, you have to be invited meaning you have to do whatever it takes to earn that coveted golden ticket, that coveted invitation. So, for example, the Talmud tells us the book of Brachos on page 61b. It tells us about the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva. The Romans made a rule, anyone who teaches Torah publicly will be executed. Rabbi Akiva says, well, a Jew without Torah is like a fish out of water. And he was arrested, and he was incarcerated, and ultimately he was flayed. And we know the story. He was reciting the Shema, and the student said, why are you reciting the Shema now? And he says, my whole life, when I recited the Shema, I wanted to die. And now I finally have the opportunity to recite the Shema and actually live up to the pledge of giving up my life and my soul for God. And his soul departed amidst the reciting of the Shema with the word Echad, and the Talmud tells us that the angels were incredulous. Zu Torah, Zu Schara. This is how you treat people. The Almighty it makes no sense. This is the Torah, the great Torah of Rabbi Tiva, and this is the reward. But the Talmud ends with a postscript. There was a prophetic voice that announced, Praiseworthy are you, Rabbi Tiva, for you are invited to Olam Abba. He in fact, became eligible. And we too can become eligible as well. 
And maybe the most important question that we have to ask is how do we make sure that we too earn that golden ticket, that we too become worthy of entrance into Olam Abba? This is a very important subject to study. And we're going to try to study this subject very carefully to really understand it as best as we can. So what are the parameters of eligibility to Olam Abba? Again, this is the ultimate thing that we want. You cannot enter absent an invitation. Our whole life over here, ultimately, it's about ensuring that when we're done, we have earned, we've become worthy of an invitation. And our life here, we know, is temporary. And one of the themes that our sages tell us is that the temporary world, the power, the opportunity in the temporary world is that in the temporary world and only in the temporary world can we earn an invitation to the permanent world. And the Ramban Nachmanides, in his magnificent work on reward and punishment called Shar Hagmul, the gate of reward, he wrote that a person would forfeit everything in the temporary world if they just got a glimpse of the permanent world. If a person was shown for just a fleeting second, either either side of the permanent world, either Olamaba or Ganadin Paradise or Gehenna Purgatory, if you just got a fleeting glimpse of that, and then you were told to earn an invitation to paradise or to avoid being condemned to the other side, to do that, you have to endure a lifetime of the suffering of Job. Says the Ramban, if someone actually saw what the permanent world had to offer, they would give up everything in the temporary world in order to be better suited for the permanent world. Life here is temporary. It's not comparable at all. There's no means of exchange between this world and al And therefore, you'd give up everything, says the Ramban, if you just knew, you just had a sense, a palpable sense of what, what it means to be in the permanent world. This idea is reminiscent of the Mishnah. The Mishnah says that one second of of bliss, of enjoyment in the spiritual world outweighs the totality of all the physical pleasure that this world has to offer. We all are pleasure seekers. That's the way the Almighty created us. Unfortunately, we sometimes get captivated by all the fleeting pleasures, all the small pleasures, all the counterfeit pleasures of this world we have an opportunity to earn eternal, real pleasures. And one second, we're told, one moment of the reward of Omaba exceeds all the pleasures of this world put together. And that's why we give up everything in the temporary world if we just had an image, a glimpse, a tiny little window into the world to come. The Gon of Vilna along these lines, 
he said that after a person passes, they're giving a little sneak peek. They're giving a little peephole into paradise. And again, paradise, we talked about this at length, but just a quick refresher, that's what's called Ganeiden, that's what's called the world of the souls, and that is an experience which is akin to Olamaba. But a person, after they pass, they're given a little sneak peek. And in the event that they're not worthy of entering, they're going to experience such pain and despair that they're not eligible. Such FOMO, as they say today, that that's going to be so painful for them. This is the calculation of the Gona Vilna. That had they experienced a millionth of that pain in their lifetime, that would be enough pain to actually kill them. Whatever amount of pain a person, God forbid, would need to endure to die, that times a million. That's what the Gona Vilna says. And then they're going to say, I'll do whatever it takes. Throw me into Gehenna. Send me back a reincarnation. It doesn't matter. Whatever it takes. I'm in. I want that. The idea of us with our permanent souls being barred from flourishing in a permanent sense, that is the most anguish-inducing experience possible. So, of course, this is scary stuff, and I'm not trying to terrify you, but I'm trying to frame this subject because it's it's very useful to know this, we're still here. We're still alive, and that means that we still have a chance in this go-round to make sure that when we arrive in the appropriate time, when the Almighty So chooses, we're armed with an invitation. What? does it take? What do we need to do? Give me the checklist. Let's go. So the primary source for this question is the Mishnah in the end of the book of Sanhedrin. Call Yisrael, all of Israel, Yeshlehem Chelek, Lohem They have a portion for Lohem Shenemar quotes the verse in Isaiah, your nation, they are all righteous. Kulam tzaditim, they're all righteous. And therefore they will inherit the permanent world. So the mission starts off by telling us, just as a baseline, all of Israel have a portion in the world to come. Why? Because the verse says, Va'ameich kulam tzaditim, your nation, the Jewish people are all tzaditim. If you just stopped over there, you say, okay, good. I'm in. We can move on to other pursuits. But then the Mishnah gives some exceptions. There are some exclusions to this general category. And these are the people who no longer, who lose their portion in the world to come. And it gives us a very unusual list. This is not a comprehensive list because there are other places in the Talmud that the list is added to. And we'll talk about all the people on that list in just a bit. But the Mishnah tells us, Ha'omer ein tchias hamesim min ha-Torah. The first person is someone who says that resurrection is not sourced in the Torah. 
Even if someone believes in the veracity of resurrection, they have to believe that that is, in fact, sourced in the Torah. And if they don't, they are disqualified from Olam Abba. Person number two who is disqualified, someone who says that the Torah is not divine. And then person number three is the apikores, which is the heretic, and that will be defined momentarily. And then Rabbi Hiva says, also someone who reads foreign books, which doesn't mean Harry Potter or uh, Hunger Games, but it means books of heresy. Talmud says Ben Sira, other books that would qualify. Someone who makes incantations upon wounds and says, the verse in Exodus, all illnesses that I placed upon Egypt, I will now place upon you. And also someone who enunciates the name of God the way it is spelled, not the way it is pronounced. And finally, it gives us a list of individuals who are disqualified, three lay people and four, I'm sorry, three kings and four lay people. The three kings are Jerobam, Yeravam, Achav, and Menashe. And the four lay people are Bilam, Doeg, Achitofel, and Gehazi. This is the Mishnah. We'll talk more about it in just a second. But the Mishnah starts off with a general rule. All of Israel have a portion in the world to come because they are all tzaddikim. They're all righteous. With the exception of these people don't believe in the resurrection that's biblically sourced, don't believe in the veracity or in the divinity of the Torah, a heretic, etc. And then we have the four lay people and the three sovereigns that lose their portion of what to come. The four lay people are Bilam, Doeg, Achitofel, and Gehazi. And the three kings are Jeroboam, Yeravam, and Achav, and Menashe. Now, it's incidentally interesting that Bilam, his name appears in this Mishnah. Bilam wasn't Jewish. And therefore, he is not included in the beginning part of the Mishnah, He's not part of all of Israel. So when he is excluded, it seems to really not fit the Mishnah. Because the Mishnah starts off all of Israel. With the exception of these people and, and these individuals. If Bilam is not part of Israel, then why is there a need to exclude him? And the Talmud tells us that this shows us that Gentiles are also eligible for Olamaba, just not Bilam. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. The Mishnah is indicating, says the Talmud, that Gentiles can also merit Olamaba. So let's zoom out a little bit. What are the qualifications for Olamaba? How do we get that ticket? The Mishnah tells us all of Israel earn a portion in the world to come. And quotes the verse, because they're all righteous. So if we assume that all Israel is righteous, which we do, then all Israel earns Olamaba. In effect, what the Mishnah is telling us is that how do you earn Olamaba? By being righteous. Well, if the whole nation's righteous, well, then the whole nation earns Olamaba. 
So we have a definition. What does it take to earn Olam You have to be righteous. Now, how do you become righteous? So we talked about this already in the past. We'll mention it again. The Torah tells us what you need to do to be righteous. And if you follow the laws of the Torah, then you are, by definition, righteous. And thereby, you merit a ticket to Olam And we talked about how the system works. We spoke about this some time ago when we spoke about the mechanics of the afterlife. We talked about how the mitzvahs really parallel a person. The human body consists of 613 parts, 248 limbs and 365 sinews. And there are 613 mitzvahs, 248 positive and 365 negative. And thus, via all the mitzvahs, we have recreated, we have replicated another version of this human, the human body. And our sages tell us even further, the soul is also comprised of 613 parts. There are 248 spiritual limbs and 365 spiritual sinews. And every mitzvah that you do, you're earning, you're acquiring, you're creating, you are nourishing, you are fostering the corresponding limb that you don't see, you don't perceive, you don't appreciate in this world. But that is you building yourself for the eternal world. And therefore, if a person does all the mitzvahs, they are righteous. They're at tzaddik. And they earn all maba. Why? Because they have built via their mitzvahs, they've built a spiritual version of themselves that can flourish, that can exist in all maba. That's what it means to be a tzaddik. Tadak means you're righteous. You do whatever Hashem asks of you. And he asks of you to behave in this way. And if you do it, you have now created a version of yourself that can exist in that world. If you just transport yourself, you teleport yourself to Olam you're not eligible. Because the way we're constructed now, it's just not a fit. But via mitzvos, we can construct a different, similar version of ourselves that is eligible, that is compatible with that world. That is what it means to be a tzaddik. And therefore, when we arrive at that world, we have a fully functioning version of ourselves that can exist and can flourish in that world. Now, in my book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp, which I'm a little frustrated with the book cover because the words upon A are a little bit of a smaller font. So people write me emails, oh, I love your book, 10-stringed harp. You step two words, upon A, 10-stringed harp. So maybe the next version, if we ever republish it, reprint it, we'll say, I want the words upon A, just larger font. But in my book, I speculated the following theory. The Mishnah states, all of Israel all of Israel, with the exception of really egregious sinners. All of Israel are righteous and therefore earn Olam Abba. If you said most of Israel, 
Uh, the majority. 80%. Most people. It seems like even that's a stretch. To be righteous, to be a tzaddik, to do all the mitzvos. It seems like it's a, it's a high level. It's a high level of righteousness. How does the Mishnah state that just because you're part of all of Israel, you are going to be righteous, you're going to be a tzaddik, and you're going to merit Olam Abba? How can the Mishnah suggest that by the time someone arrives at Olam Abba, they're going to be, just because they're part of this nation, they're going to be compatible with the world to come? So I speculated an answer. That we'll talk more, please God, when we get to the 13th and final principle, that of the resurrection. I speculated an answer that what we're really trying to become, or the, the minimum, the base, the baseline for entry to Ulmaba is to develop ourselves into a kernel of a tzaddik. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The Talmud of the book of Sanhedrin, page 90b on the bottom, it records a discussion between Queen Cleopatra and Rabbi Meir, the primary author of the Mishnah. And the queen tells the great rabbi, I know that the dead will come alive. I believe in resurrection. But... When they come back alive, will they be clothed or will they be naked? This seems like a silly question, but it is featured in the Talmud. And we also hear the great rabbi's response. The great rabbi tells her, well, when you plant a kernel of wheat in the ground, You plant it without any chaff. It doesn't have any clothing. But when it sprouts forth from the ground, it comes out clothed. So when you put the kernel of the wheat in the ground, it's naked and it comes out with clothing. Well, when you put the righteous people in the ground, they are buried clothed. So if when something which is buried unclothed emerges clothed, certainly someone or something that is buried clothed will emerge clothed. So if you just read that quickly, it seems like it's a clever rejoinder to the queen. But there's a deep message being conveyed here. When we take a body and we bury it, by the Torah's definition, it's it's like we're planting it. It's a, it's a seed that's going into the ground. And the resurrection is akin to that seed coming forth, that seed growing and emerging and surfacing. We don't believe that, you know, when someone dies, we just discard the body. We don't eat the body anymore. No, the body is the seed that we're planting in the ground to emerge, to surface with the resurrection. So perhaps we can speculate. You know, a seed, on one hand, is the same thing that 
emerges. You put a seed in the ground and then a, a tree comes out. The tree and the seed is the same thing on a, on a DNA level. It's like a miniaturized version of the whole tree because all of the information is already implanted in the seed. It just needs to be developed, cultivated, and actualized. But it's the same thing, but it's obviously very different. The seed that has all the potential and it gets developed and other things perhaps are added to it, but that seed emerges and it's something which is totally different. So perhaps we could say, based upon this framing that our sages provide for us, that when someone dies and we plant them in the ground and that's going to be actualized and developed with their rebirth for the resurrection for Olam Abba, what we're trying to create here is a seed. Our life is the opportunity to formulate what kind of seed gets planted at death. And that's what kind of fruit, so to speak, will emerge for Olam Abba. So even if someone is not completely a tzaddik, they're not completely a fully developed tzaddik in this lifetime, all of Israel, we have in our bones, we have in our blood, a sensitivity, an affinity, an association with the idea of the soul and our spiritual halves. And we have our training in Torah and mitzvos. Everyone at least will have some potential, some kernel to be a tzaddik in this lifetime. And that seed will develop, will germinate. And ultimately, when it surfaces, it will be fully righteous. And thus, perhaps, that's what the Mishnah is is hinting to. All of Israel, if someone believes in the divinity of the Torah, if someone believes in the permanent world, you believe that resurrection will happen. You believe in Olam and you believe that the Torah is divine, it's telling us how to live the best sort of life. With that just basic philosophical underpinnings of a life, you already have whatever you need to make sure that you're going to live a life with a sensitivity and awareness to that. And the result of that life will be a little, little seed that can emerge with the resurrection. Now, someone who doesn't believe in the afterlife... It's not that they're punished, that they don't merit the afterlife. If you don't believe that there's a permanent world that you're working towards, you're not going to invest in that half of yourself. And therefore, when you arrive at the end of your life here, you're not going to be armed with what it takes to earn admittance to Olam Abba. You won't be a tzaddik. And you won't even be enough of a seed of a tzaddik because that's not a priority. And I always think about the sad irony of someone who doesn't believe in the afterlife. Ironically, they're right for themselves. If you don't believe in the afterlife, it's true. You don't have any for you, nothing positive to look forward to. You are correct. And by the way, the Ramban in his introduction to 
the book of Job, which of course deals with a lot of these weighty eschatological issues, he says that if a person does not believe in the afterlife, even if they do tons of mitzvahs and they're laden with Torah, there's no ulam above for them. Yes, the Almighty will reward every person for every mitzvah they do. But it's not necessarily in the best and the highest fashion. He'll be rewarded in this lifetime, in some other way, but not with Olam Haba. Again, if persons believe in the divinity of the Torah, the Torah is the only way to make sure that we become righteous, a tzaddik. If we don't know what the Almighty wants of us, and we don't take that seriously, we're not going to earn all of these proverbial spiritual limbs, or even the kernel of them, even if we're not perfect, we still have a sensitivity and we still try to improve. But if a person does not recognize the divinity of the Torah, they're not going to harness its powers to develop themselves into someone worthy of Olam The heretic, the Talmud defines, as someone who does not believe in the value of the spiritual world. Someone who says, how have the rabbis benefited us? What are, what are they they're just pouring over ancient Babylonian texts? How they're not productive to society. They're parasites. They just want to study all day. Someone who says that is displaying a lack of value to the spiritual realm. And again, not as a punishment. But someone who says this is not important is not going to prioritize that, at least not sufficiently enough, to make sure that they earn Olam Abba. So we have a basic understanding of what it takes to get Olam Abba. You have to be righteous. You have to be a tzaddik, which really means you have to have all the mitzvos. And the more robustly you perform the mitzvos, the more dedication and devotion and commitment the more robust those corresponding spiritual limbs and sinews are going to be. We talked about this when we talked about kares, the concept of spiritual disenfranchisement. We talked about the fact that every mitzvah has a different limb associated with it. So some of them are like, you know, the the, the pinky toe, which you could live. It's not so pleasant, but you could live without that. Some of them are the heart and the brain and the liver, and other things which are totally indispensable. And that's the death karis. Karis means spiritual death, because if you don't have that corresponding bit of spiritual hardware, so to speak, there's no life for you. If someone has, let's say, a more minor mitzvah, of course, no mitzvah is minor, but relatively minor, or at least corresponding to a relatively minor limb, they'll just be a spiritual cripple in the world to come, but they could still potentially have life. But the general principle, we understand what it takes to get Olam Now, the Rambam, in chapter 3 of the Laws of Repentance, he takes this Mishnah, and he collects all the sources that talk about a person losing their portion in Olam And he breaks it down to more finer categorization. And again, he starts off with the same principle. 
all of Israel, they have a portion in the world to come. And then we see a very large list of people who get excluded. And it's very important for us to know this list to make sure that we don't fall into any of these categories. And if we do, that we repent and fix ourselves. And these are the ones who don't have a portion in Olamaba. Haminim, heretics, or one type of heretics, and he will define that in just a bit. Apikarsim, other types of heretics, those who repudiate the Torah, those who repudiate the resurrection and the Messiah, rebels, those who cause the masses to sin, those who depart, who deviate from the ways of the masses, those who do sins with an outstretched arm in a brazen fashion, in a public fashion, like Yehoiakim, the son of Josiah, informants, those who intimidate the public, not for the sake of heaven, murderers, people who are habitual gossipers, and those who reverse and undo their circumcision. Adharam goes through these in more detail. What does it mean to be a min, which is a certain type of heretic? Five different philosophical, theological misconceptions. Number one, if someone is atheistic, they don't believe in the concept of a god. And they say the world has no overseer and leader. They are a heretic and they have no ulmaba. If someone says the world has a creator, but it's not one, it's two. They're a heretic who loses ulmaba. If someone says, well, the world has one creator, but this creator is corporeal, has an image, lose ulmaba. If someone says that this one is not the first one, it's not the foundation of everything, it's not the only independent source of existence, they lose Olamaba. And finally, the fifth type of min is someone who worships some sort of other creation of God, like a star or some sort of astrological sign, or someone tries to pray through an intermediary, they are disqualified from Olam Three people are classified as an apitorist, that kind of heretic. Someone who doesn't believe in prophecy. Someone who repudiates the prophecy of Moshe. Someone who repudiates the notion that God knows the deeds of humanity. Three people are included in those who repudiate the Torah. Someone who says the Torah is not from Hashem, not from God. Even if a person repudiates one verse or one word, and they say God did not write this, but Moshe himself wrote it. We don't believe that Moshe wrote the Torah. Moshe actually did the physical writing, but he's the stenographer. He's the typist of God. The author is God. We're told here, this is based upon the Talmud. If someone says that Moshe himself, using his own editorial license, wrote one letter or one word or one verse, this is someone who repudiates the veracity, the divinity of the Torah. 
Someone who repudiates the oral Torah is included in this list. Someone who says that the Torah was at one point true. But the Almighty swapped out this mitzvah for that mitzvah or rejected the whole Torah. It's not active. Like these Hagariites, Hagarites, i.e. Muslims. The Muslims believe in the Torah, but now it's been replaced by the Quran. If someone becomes a Muslim, a Jew that becomes a Muslim, they would be disqualified from Olam Abba. And then he talks about apostates. If someone is an apostate and they reject one mitzvah or they reject all the mitzvahs, and this is a person, you know, we all have a Yetzahara. We all have an evil inclination. But there's a difference between saying, listen, I want to do what's right. I just sometimes lose my battles to the Yetzahara. Versus someone who says, listen, I am rejecting this and I'm doing it publicly and I'm doing it willfully and wantonly and regularly. I'm not at all wrestling with the Yetzahara. And this mitzvah, I, I, I can't. No, this is not for me. Even if it's something as relatively minor as wearing shotness or shaving with, uh, uh, cutting your hair in a way that violates the rules of the Torah. Someone who does that, provided, this is an important point, provided that they're doing it just deliberately to spite God, they lose Olam Abba. Someone who converts to a different religion. The Muslims say, the Christians say, if you don't join us, we're going to kill you. And the person says, well, why why am I dealing with this? I got to be amongst the Jews and they're so depressed and they're so persecuted. I'll join the winning team. This is someone in the words of the Rambam, they are an apostate for the whole Torah and they are disqualified from Olam Abba. Now, there is a whole subject called a Tinok Shanishba, which means a child that was taken captive. You have a small baby, a small Jewish baby, and they were taken captive and they just grew up as a non-Jew or they weren't even aware of their Jewish identity. And they cannot be blamed for their apostasy or their heresy. There's a very big debate and discussion as to whether or not they merit Olam Abba. Someone who was never raised with a Jewish identity, someone who was never raised with a, a, a fealty to the Torah and to God, how much can we blame them? That's a very important subject because today there are many Jews that were never exposed to Torah never exposed to mitzvos, and they have, even though they weren't necessarily taken captive by a foreign nation, but in effect, they are captives from the world of Torah, from the world of mitzvos. So that is an important subject that is discussed and debated at length. Are they still eligible for Olam Abba? Continues the Rambam in this list. And again, I know this is not so scintillatingly exciting, but I think it's important to go through that. If we're going to do this comprehensively, if we're going to cover this subject properly, I wanted to go through everything that he tells us so that way 
we have the education to know what renders a person disqualified from Ulama, but God forbid. The Ramam gives us three examples of someone who causes the masses to sin. Someone who does in a very large way, like Jeroboam, making the Jews do idolatry, or the Sadducees who made the Jews reject all of oral Torah. And even if a person causes the masses to do a more minor sin. And included in this list is someone who compels the Jews to sin, like Menashe, who would kill the Jews, even though he himself was a Jew. He would kill the Jews until they did idolatry. They are all included in this list of causing the masses to sin. Someone who departs, who deviates, who excludes themselves from the masses. When the Jewish people are suffering, it's important for us to suffer alongside them. If the Jewish people are fasting, we fast with them. If a person says, eh, that's for the Jews, it's not for me, I'm going to be like everyone else, like all the other nations, that person would fall under this category of someone who deviates from the ways of the masses. Someone who does sins with an outstretched arm like Yehoiakim in a very brazen and defiant way, even if it is not necessarily a very major sin, they would be disqualified. Informants, someone who informs upon their fellow Jew to the rulers, to the overlords, and gets them either killed or beaten up. And even if someone informs on their fellow Jew in a monetary way, in a civil way, if they inform to the Gentile authorities, who knows what could happen to them? And that sin of informing upon your fellow Jew would disqualify you from Olam Someone who intimidates the masses, this is like a leader, and everyone's terrified of them. And they are ruling in a totalitarian fashion. And their objective is just for self-aggrandizement. And just to advance their own cause, but not for the cause of heaven. Like foreign kings, they these people lose their portion of the world to come. And again, the Ram calculates that there are 24 people on this list, even though they're part of Israel. And even though, again, the, the starting point is all of Israel have a portion of the world to come, these people lose their portion. And then he adds another list. Another list of more minor transgressions that our sages said that if a person is accustomed in these ways, they lose their olam abad. Therefore, it's very important to distance ourselves from them and to be very careful to not fall into these ways. Some of them seem to be very innocent and, and innocuous. It's very important to be aware that these are very severe things. If someone assigns to their fellow a derogatory nickname, if someone's always giving people, you know, not flattering nicknames, our sages say they lose their portion in Olmaba. If someone addresses their friend with their derogatory nickname, if someone whitens their fellow's face publicly, if someone accrues honor for themselves by depressing and castigating someone else. 
If someone embarrasses the Torah sages, if someone embarrasses their teachers, if someone ridicules the festivals, if someone defiles the holy foods, like sacrifices, anyone who is on this list, if they do it in a regular fashion, the sages tell us that they lose their portion in the world to come. Now, the Rambam ends this section with a very important line. This whole list of people that are disqualified for Olam Abba is only when they die before they repent. But if a person repents from their wicked ways and they die and they are a Baal Tshuva, and they've earned the title of being a Baal Tshuva, they've done Tshuva if they have repented, this person is indeed included in those who earn a ticket to Olam Abba. Because there's nothing that stands in the way of repentance. A person could be a total heretic and repudiate everything, their whole lives. But before they pass, they repent. They earn a portion in Olam Abba. Even if a person is a rebel against their creator, and they repent even between themselves and their creator, and they haven't repented in a public fashion, nevertheless, their repentance is accepted, and they are once again incorporated into the nation and earn their eternal reward. Which is why a person should always be ready to say the vidui, to say the confession before they pass. Because who knows how the Almighty views us. And it may be an opportunity to catapult oneself from a level of being disqualified for Olam Abba into a level of the lofty ones that are meritorious and earn a portion in the world to come. Our Sadists tell us it's imperative for us to repent the day before we pass. When's that? Could be today. It could be tomorrow. We don't know. So we should try to repent every single day. Now, in the end of my book, the last two chapters are dedicated to other ways to earn the coveted golden ticket to Olam Abba. I talk about the spiritual shortcuts and the idea of one perfect mitzvah. The Talmud gives us a list of people who earned Olam Abba in one moment. The first person that it mentions is a advisor to a Caesar. The Caesar hated the Jews. And he says, I want to kill the Jews. And everyone said, bravo, bravo. Besides for one person, Kitia Bar Shalom. And he says, you can't do that. You can't kill the Jews. A, many have tried. You won't succeed either. B, you'll be the one Roman leader that killed their own citizens. 
and uh, Caesar had to concede to the arguments of his advisor. He said, listen, I can't kill the Jews, but I can kill you. And this advisor was executed. And as he's being led to his own execution, people are heckling at him. And one person tells him, you're, you're, you're a sucker because you died for the Jewish people and you're not even a member of the Jews. You haven't paid your tax. You haven't paid the duties for this nation. So Talmud says that he grabbed a knife, circumcised himself, and said, now I've paid my tax. And after he was executed, a prophetic voice announced, Katia bar Shalom is invited, again those words, is invited, to Olam And when the great Rabbi Judah the Prince heard the story, he started to cry. And he said, some people, they have to work their entire lifetimes to earn that golden ticket, and some can acquire it in just one hour. And the Talmud brings three stories of this kind. I'll skip one of them, but the third one is talking about, again, the Romans. And again, this is at a time when Torah study was banned. But just as Rabbi Akiva did, the great Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion also taught Torah publicly. And he had a Torah scroll with him, and they arrested him, and they wrapped him with the Torah scroll, and they made a fire around him at a distance where it wouldn't engulf him, but it would cause him tremendous agony. It was just a terrible form of torture. And they placed some cold compresses, some tufts of wool dunked in water. They placed it on his heart, again, to keep him alive, to prolong his agony. And the Talmud records the conversations that he had with his daughter. His daughter said to him, I can't, I can't bear to see you like this. And he said, well, if it was just me dying, it would be a tragedy. But look, they're burning me in the Torah scroll. I know the Almighty will not sit idly when his Torah is being burned. He's going to demand restitution. Once he deals with the Torah's shame and disgrace, he'll take care of me as well. And then the students asked him, what do you see? And he responded with the iconic words, I see that the scrolls, the parchment is being burned, but the letters, they're flying up to heaven. Amidst this scene, the Roman executioner has a change of heart. And he tells Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, I'm going to raise the flame. I'm going to hasten and expedite your death if you promise me that you will ensure that I arrive to Olam Is it a deal? It is. Will you swear to me? Yes, I will. Right away, he raised the flame. He withdrew those compresses and instantly the great rabbi passed. And the executioner himself jumped into the fire 
And he too passed. And again, a prophetic voice announced Rabbi Hanin ben Tradion and the executioner, both of them are included, are invited to Omaba. And again, Rabbi Judah the Prince, when you hear the story, he cried. Some people take some whole lifetime to be invited and others acquire it in one hour. Now in my book, I speculated how exactly that works. So you'll have to read the book. But this is another path, apparently. There's the path of a whole lifetime. A lifetime of trying to do all the mitzvahs. Earning all those limbs piecemeal. And there is a way to also acquire it in just one hour. Not limb by limb, piece by piece, but all at once. And finally, we're told that there is yet another way, another avenue to earn a ticket to Omaba. And this is featured in the comment of the Rambam upon the last Mishnah in the book of Makos. The Mishnah says that the Almighty wanted to benefit the Jewish people, therefore he gave them a lot of Torah and mitzvahs. Why do we have so many mitzvahs? Says the Mishnah, it's for our benefit. Now, you could perhaps say it's not to our benefit, it's to our detriment. So many mitzvahs, there's so many different ways that we can blunder. But no, it's to our benefit. How so? Explains the Rambam. A foundational principle of Torah is that when a person fulfills one mitzvah of all 613, just one mitzvah, but they do it properly. They don't do it with any other motivations aside from love of God. They're not trying to get any reward. They're not trying to avoid any punishment. They don't want any honor. They get no brownie points in any way for it. They want to do it because it's what Hashem wants. Just one mitzvah of that sort earns a person a ticket to eternity. How that works, again, I have to send you to my book because I offered in the very last chapter three different ways to understand how exactly that works. Just just one mitzvah done properly, done with exquisite devotion that earns a person Olmaba. But the general question, how do we earn a ticket to the afterlife? Now we have some answers. But before we sign off, there are three more important points that I want to address. First of all, we're talking about admission. Just to make sure that you are in. You have a ticket. You're in the arena. In this world, everyone's level is going to be determined by how much they elevated, how much they refined themselves in this world. How pure, how pristine was that seed that they planted with their burial. And therefore, there are going to be gradients in the afterlife. And our sages tell us that there's even going to be envy. Everyone's going to have a canopy. It's going to be representative of their level and their stature and their achievement in the eternal world. And when you see the other guy or the other gal's canopy, 
people are going to be singed with envy. So again, it's a very important point. We're not merely seeking an invitation. We'd like to have a good seat, so to speak. We want to have an elevated status in that world. That's point number one. Point number two is that this is a two-person effort. Your destiny is intertwined with your spouse, with your mate in the afterlife. The Talmud tells us in the book of Titus, page 25, I believe it's B. It tells us of the great rabbi, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. He was destitute. He had legendary poverty in his lifetime. And his wife said, I, I just cannot bear it. They lived in such grinding poverty. So he tells his wife, okay, what should I do? He says, what should you do? Pray to the Almighty. So he prayed. And then from heaven, they delivered him a a massive golden leg, like a table leg. Sell it. Now you have uh, $200 million. Problem is solved. But then his wife had a dream. And she sees in the dream that they're sitting in Olamaba and their table's all rickety. Everyone else has a nice, flat, sturdy table and there's this rickety because one of the ledges is missing. So she says, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in it. I don't want this golden leg. Pray to God that he takes it back. And indeed, he prayed and he's holding this leg and he's praying and from heaven... They extended out and they withdrew it. They accepted his return. The return policy was still active. It was still within the window, the returnable window. And the Talmud ends by saying that actually, it's very hard to get the Almighty to take something back. It's a greater miracle that they withdrew the golden leg. That's a bigger miracle than they actually delivered it in the first place. Now this, again, is a Talmudic source that tells us clearly that spouses are together in Olamaba. Similarly, in chapter 39 of the book of Genesis, we read about Joseph and the saga of Mrs. Potiphar. And she wants to be with Joseph. The verse tells us in verse 10, every day she would badger him and he refused to listen to her to sleep with her and to be with her. So Rashi asked the question, what does it mean to sleep with her and to be with her? Does Rashi to sleep with her means to sleep with her and to be with her means for eternity. And the Midrash adds, had Joseph capitulated, he would have been bound and linked with Mrs. Potiphar forever in Gehenna. The bond of marriage is the intertwining of two souls to a shared destiny forever. Now, obviously, this raises all kinds of questions. Well, what about resurrection? What about someone who's married twice? What about reincarnation? What if you've been around 50 times and you have 50 wives or husbands? All important questions that we need to ponder. But the principle is that this whole subject of earning the afterlife, it's a husband and wife thing together. 
And finally, the last matter to discuss is Gentiles in the afterlife. So we already talked about Bilaam. The Talmud tells us that Bilaam, the non-Jew, the non-Jewish prophet, he is excluded from the afterlife. Implied from that is that other Gentiles are, in fact, capable of admittance. What does a non-Jew need to do to earn admittance? So the Rambam in the aforementioned Laws of Repentance, chapter 3, tells us, All of Israel have a portion of the world to come. And so too the pious ones of the nations. The righteous of the Jews and the pious of the Gentiles have a portion in the world to come. What does it mean that a Gentile can be pious? What does it take to be pious for a Gentile? So the Rambam elsewhere in the laws of kings and their wars, chapter 8, law number 11, tells us, whoever accepts upon themselves the seven Noahide laws, and they are fastidious, very careful to fulfill them, behold, this person is amongst the pious of the Gentiles, and that person merits a portion in Olmaba. Just a quick refresher. What are the seven Noahide laws to refrain from idolatry, from blasphemy, from murder, from all the sexual crimes, from theft, not to eat from a living animal, and to have a system of laws? Now, the Rambam adds a very important condition to this. A Gentile who fulfills the seven Noahide laws they are a pious Gentile, and they have a portion in the world to come, provided that they accept upon themselves the seven Noahide laws, and they do them, they perform them, because the Almighty thus instructed in his Torah. And he revealed it to us via Moshe. But if a person does it because it just makes sense, it's the right thing to do, that person is not included amongst the pious of the Gentiles. Maybe they are amongst the wise ones of the Gentiles, but they're not amongst the pious ones of the Gentiles. If a Gentile keeps everything, but not because of the Torah, they have no path, says the Rambam, to Olam Haba. Now we see this idea in Ramchal as well. When he talks about the difference between Jews and non-Jews in the way of God, section 2, chapter 4, paragraph 7, he explains that Gentiles can enter Olmaba, but the mechanics of how they enter is a bit different from how the Jews enter. Gentiles who are pious can indeed earn a ticket to Olmaba. However, for a Gentile to enter Olmaba, they have to hitch a ride, so to speak, ride the coattails of Abraham. They have to, in his words, graft themselves to the tree of Abraham 
to join the Jewish people, so to speak, in Olam Abba. What he's, in fact, telling us, there's only one nation in Olam Abba, that's the Jewish people. And anyone who's connected to them. If a Gentile connects themselves to the Jews, well, then they earn Olam Abba. So this fits nicely with the Rambam. To be a pious Gentile, what does that mean? It means specifically someone who does it because of the Torah, because of the Torah of the Jewish people. It's not just that they're admitted because of their behavior alone, but specifically that behavior has to be has to be such that it's connecting them to Torah. Now, if you look at the commentaries on the Rambam, they're a little bit puzzled by this, and they're wondering where does the Rambam get this condition that it's only Gentiles who are pious because of the Torah. Where does he get that from? So some suggest, some of the commentaries on the Rambam suggest, for example, the Kesef Mishnah. This is written by the author of the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Bet Yosef. He says that the Rambam, this is his own theory. There's no source for this in the Talmud. I want to speculate that perhaps there is a source in the Talmud for this idea. The idea that Gentiles can only get Olam Abba as a result of their connection to the Jewish people and to Torah, I believe perhaps it is sourced in the Talmud. Two of the sources we already mentioned. Katia Bar Shalom, the Roman advisor who saved the Jews. He had to pay a tax. He had to be circumcised. He had to have some sort of association with the nation, and only then can he pass through. Similarly, the executioner who hastened the death of Rabbi Hanim Tradion, he had to get a guarantee from the rabbi. Promise me you'll take me with you. His deeds, his righteousness alone would not be sufficient. A third source, perhaps, for this idea is the wonderful and iconic and quite memorable teaching in the Talmud, in the book of Sometimes I say the word Talmud. It's really Talmud. I say Talmud because I use a lot voice to text on my phone. And you say Talmud, you get something else. I always say Talmud. So that way the machine picks up what I'm trying to say. But then it gets in my head. I say Talmud when I'm talking to y'all. So forgive me. Talmud. In the Talmud. In the book of Avodazar, page 2a through 2b and into 3a, it is talking about the future. In the future, the Almighty will take a Torah scroll and will say, whoever engaged in Torah, come, now is your time to get your reward. And everyone congregates, everyone shows up, every nation is interested in this reward. And again, like we spoke about at the very onset, if you have a picture of the eternal reward. You'll do anything, anything, anything to get it. So all the nations, they show up. And the man says, no, no, you have to organize yourself into different nations. Once they're organized into discrete nations, they come to God. And the first nation that shows up is Rome. And God tells the Romans, well, what, what did you do? List your accomplishments. And they will say, well, we made a lot of markets 
And we made a lot of bathhouses. And we made a lot of money. And the only reason why we did any of this was only for the sole purpose that the Jewish people of Israel can have the ability to study Torah. And therefore, we're qualified. We didn't study Torah ourselves, but we facilitated and enabled, via all our other things, that the Jewish people can study Torah. And the Almighty is going to respond to them, the Talmud tells us, you fools, what you did, you didn't do it for the Jewish people, you did it for yourselves. Why did you have marketplaces? Because you wanted brothels. Why did you establish bathhouses? Because you wanted to have pleasure. You wanted to indulge yourself. Money, gold and silver, it's not even yours. It's mine. Do you have any Torah? When they emerge empty-handed in anger, the next nation comes in, and that's the Persians. And they might as well tell the Persians, well, what did you do? Well, our our accomplishments are vast. We made a lot of bridges, and we conquered a lot of lands. And we made a lot of wars. And the only reason why we did it, the sole purpose, was just so the Jewish people could study Torah. We should get a portion in the world to come. And they might respond to them, well, whatever you did, you did for yourself. You made bridges because you wanted to collect the taxes. You conquered lands to raise armies. Wars? You don't make wars. I make wars. Hashem Ishmael Hamah. God is the God of war. Do you have any Torah? And again, they leave empty-handed. And every nation, the same thing. If you read this Talmud very carefully, you will see that their claim, the Romans, the Persians, their claim to Omaba was spot on. If they built bridges and established marketplaces and bathhouses and collected money and conquered lands, and if they actually did it for the Jewish people, it would have been a good argument. Had they facilitated and enabled the Jewish people to flourish, they would have had some sort of connection and association with the Jewish people, then it would be a winning argument. The only problem is they did it for themselves. They actually did not invest. Of course, they tried to suppress, but they didn't invest in the Jewish people and the Torah. But if their claim was true, had they truly done their efforts to facilitate the study of Torah for the Jewish people, in fact, they would have been eligible. Thus, the reward of the righteous, the pious Gentiles, is by, so to speak, facilitating and connecting and associating with the Jewish people. So what does it mean? On one level, it means to do the seven mitzvahs that are theirs. But not just to do them because it's a mitzvah, to do them specifically because the Torah says it. And that way, they have association with the Torah of the Jewish people, and through that, they have an association with the Olam of the Jewish nation. Or, if they facilitate the Jewish people studying Torah, then that, again, is another way for them to latch on to the nation that's going to merit Olam So I think this is, again, another encouragement. Best thing that a Gentile can do to ensure that they too are included in this incredible reward in the afterlife 
working is to find ways to advance the cause of the Jewish nation in this world. Personally, it means for them to connect to Torah that's pertinent to them. And the seven laws, and of course, these seven laws are very broad because they're, we have a maximalist view on these seven laws. There are even very reputable sources that say, well, studying all of the Torah, at least the scripture, that's part of the mitzvah of the seven laws. Because again, the Ramam says that you have to know that these laws were commanded in the Torah. So the Gentiles need to study that as well. But it means for them to to learn and to grow and to observe these mitzvahs because the Almighty instructed Moshe and the Jewish people, and that's their part of that, and to invest whatever they can to support Torah, to support Torah study, to advance the cause of the nation. A, make sure you're personally righteous as a Gentile, pious as a Gentile, know it's from Hashem. B, to hitch your wagon to the Jewish nation. I will bless those who bless you. God tells Abraham, the nations who bless the Jewish people are included in the afterlife. And thus concludes our study of Principle 11 with the unending, never-ceasing, unwavering help of the Almighty. We have talked about the subject of reward and punishment at great length from really all the angels I wanted to touch upon it. Next, we have the two remaining principles, principle number 12, which I must say I am very excited to dig into. That is the principle of the Messiah. And of course, the final principle, principle number 13, the resurrection of the dead. I am looking forward to this greatly. I thank you for listening. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I'm at the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Our website is torchweb.org. And every podcast that I do, you could scroll down in the notes in the description, find links to our website to learn more about what we do. And maybe you want to chip in to help keep the light of Torch lit. But send me an email. Let me know what you think. Questions, comments, feedback is always appreciated. Rabbi Walby at gmail.com.